0: So, consciousness, which is, there can be nothing really closer to ourselves than our own consciousness, and yet it's like the deepest mystery of all existence that we have. It's the, sort of, it's the, it's the question of questions for philosophy, the problem of problems, as they say. Uh, it's something that even the world's most advanced scientific thinking really struggles even to have a basic understanding of. Um, and for materialists, which is what Marxists are, um, as, um, was discussed in the last session, it is, um, perhaps the one stumbling block or is seen as the one stumbling block for materialism because to reduce things to simply matter seems to leave something out of the equation when it comes to personality, when it comes to feeling and, ex- and, uh, experience. <coughs> and, um, there's, a uh, a, sort of a cognitive scientist called Douglas Hofstadter, who has written a lot about this, and he has written a book um, w- in which he, t- he tries to deal with this conundrum. Being a scientist, he's also a materialist. Um, this strange conundrum where, as he, said, as he says, this is a quote, "...do dreads and dreams, hopes and griefs, play any, world in the ro- any role in the world of physical objects?" such pure abstractions have causal powers. Can they shove massive things around, or are they just impotent fictions? And this, to me, I think, gets to the heart. This is like the key question of philosophy, the relationship between matter uh, or existence and consciousness. And what causes what? Uh, where, and, and where do they come from? Um, and it's not just a riddle of uh, that kind, but to me, to really understand it and to see why it is such a riddle, you have to understand that it's, it really is the fundamental question in philosophy, um, not just in itself, but it, you find it in all other aspects that aren't to do with consciousness. And I think what it is, the mystery is something that can only be solved with di- a dialectical approach. And that is the question of the relationship, not just between consciousness and matter, <laughs> but also between the general and the particular, the quality and quantity, and how it is that around universe we see only physical objects we only ever experience individual physical objects and yet at the same time there seem to be these other things there seem to be forces there seem to be general qualities there seem to be laws and yet we can't find those laws we can't see them we can't pick them up and examine them and so do they really exist if you're a materialist are they just fictions are they just convenient ways of of sort of abbreviating reality, but really are just illusions, and there's only just individual objects crashing into one another randomly. And that really, to me, is the question which has dogged philosophy since the very beginning. It's the question that Plato dealt with in his idea of the world of the forms. You know, how, do we, how can we say that this dog is a dog? It's just an individual physical object. It's different from all other dogs. Isn't that just a prejudice? And in order to resolve that, he said, and this shows the link between this and consciousness, He said that's because we have an a priori knowledge of perfect ideas of which all the material objects we find are poor reflections of, flawed, partial, one-sided reflections of. And that's how we know that this is a a particular dog and not just a a random object in front of us. That, to me, I find this problem, this this difficulty in resolving the concrete and the general, the laws and the particular objects that are... uh, seem to be manipulated by laws, if you like. That trouble in, in, in um, bringing those th- two things into connection with one another is the key problem for philosophy. And I think grasping it will help us enormously in understanding <coughs> what consciousness is. And it might seem to be um, something of a luxury to debate for Marxists, to debate this thing of what is the I, what is the self? Uh, what is this sense of feeling, of emotion? Is it really there at all? That kind of thing. But I don't think it is. Um, not only because it is a deeply fascinating question in itself, which obviously gets to the heart of our own human existence as individuals, but also because to be able to answer this question materially would be a revolution in human thinking. And also um, it would help us to um, answer those those uh, sort of key criticisms flung uh, both at Marxism and any kind of materialism. And that that is that question of personality, of you know, sort of some sort of elusive sort of you know quality to things that you can't actually see, you can't touch, um, but and yet it seems to be obviously there. Um, you know, is there an I is is you know is that that is the thing that is flung at materialists by idealists. They would say, well, Yeah, you can explain, you know, the synapses firing in the brain, you can explain electrical currents moving through the brain, but you can't explain feeling, you can't explain why, what personality is, what a sense of self is. And similarly, we get the same accusation with historical materialism. In other words, when we describe society as subject to definite laws which operate through history, and fundamentally is coming down to economic processes which determine the overall movement of society, Of course, as many of you are aware, we're accused of being rigid determinists, leaving no place for culture for individual agency, um, and just reducing everything to base economic questions. It's far too simplistic, not nuanced enough, etc. These are the kind of you know things that uh, Marxists are accused of, and certainly many Marxists do have obviously a very simplistic and reductionistic approach on these matters, and that's that's a great mistake. And I think if we can show how, on the one hand, it's true that everything is material uh, and that in terms of society, fundamentally, things are determined by economic laws and processes, but at the same time, there's still a role, um, there's still something unique or distinct about consciousness, culture, etc., That then it's not merely just economic forces. We can explain that and show what the link is. Um, then I think we will have done a great service to Marxist theory, um, and I think one of the reasons also that this is the hardest question of all, really, that this is the thing that is people can't really understand um, what consciousness is, is because it it is the pinnacle of human thinking, isn't it? Thinking about thought, you know, uh, and therefore if we have any deficiencies in our methods of thinking, they will be shown up with particular force in this area of philosophy, the philosophy of mind. Also, obviously, especially because it affects our own sense of personality. So we, our own interests, our own emotions are very closely tied up with this question. Um, <clears throat> and um, it's, it's, for that reason, a very difficult one to solve. Whereas, for example, to understand what the sun is made of or why earthquakes take place, you can have a quite a flawed methodology of, of, of thinking. You can have quite a flawed logic, I think. You can still kind of grasp at least on a superficial level what you know is happening when the sun burns, what is happening when the ground shakes. But when you want to generalize further and further and come, come to deeper and deeper understandings of things, the more important uh, a correct method method of thought uh, becomes. And uh, I think on the question of consciousness, therefore it takes on the most acute form, and the only way to do it is to get, jump into the water and start thinking. You can't sort of think about thoughts without also thinking, if you see what I mean. Hegel made that point. He said it's it's like trying to sort of um, learn how to swim without actually swimming, you know, it, without like reading a book about how to swim. It's You can't actually grasp consciousness without being consciousness, without, without being it and going through all of its processes. And again, that makes it in a certain sense much harder because we can't step back from it so easily. Um, and I, I would propose that the key way to really understanding what consciousness is is to, to approach it historically, in its real historical context. And a big part of the mystery of it is from this classic mistake that people have. And you find that if you, even if you read the latest cognitive science, you still find these sort of basic errors of thinking in that they take consciousness as a finished object. They take a person which is a product of thousands of years of human history and also before that of evolution, and find a sort of unit of consciousness within them, a centre of one self, if you like, an, an I, I is in the not an E-Y-E, but I with the one letter. And of course, then it does seem a mystery. It seems like this has somehow been inserted into a human body. And, and how, how, how do we explain that? It seems inherently mysterious. I think that that's that is a key part of the problem. Too. We have to understand where, how it has actually historically evolved. They would say, such idealists would say that there's a, a, a sort of an, an indivisible and immaterial I or self within each person. Uh, basically, obviously, basically a soul. Um, and uh, and 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 they would say that you know quite clearly you can have other objects, material objects, which have many of the same functions. As uh, um, as a human brain um, or the nervous system, but clearly there's no there's no there's no being inside it. There's nothing that feels. So, for example, you can have a robot or a digital camera which can register photons in the same way that our eyes and uh, retinas and nervous system do, but doesn't really see anything. It doesn't feel it. It doesn't. You know what I mean? There's no internal life to that object. It, um, and they would say that uh, basically that this is. Um, uh, this can only be explained on an idealist basis. There's a soul or there's a sort of, there's, there's something immaterial going on there. Um, however, obviously, as materialists, we reject this mysticism. Um, first of all, we would say it doesn't explain anything. Uh, really, like all, for me, like all idealist explanations of things, it's not actually an explanation at all. It's really a label for our lack of knowledge, the fact that we haven't conquered an idea yet. It's, it, it's like a signpost pointing that we haven't yet grasped consciousness and that's true uh, but it doesn't mean that their alternative is an explanation similarly like like to say that the universe was created by god to solve the riddle of, of a first cause or what you know or is there an infinite chain of causes that's not really an explanation you haven't explained where god came from what motivated god to cause the universe and similarly um quite why um we would have uh, uh, if there's an indivisible a simple soul as plato would put it just a sort of in, you know not not composed of different parts, but just a one spiritual entity, or, as Descartes also would have explained it, then, how do we explain the differences in personality that we have? How do we explain our different drives uh, and, and and also why are these mysterious objects of souls motivated to interact with the world to be so emotionally tied up with all of the movings and shakings of the material world? Why would they care about it? What has motivated them to enter into the world of physical objects? All of these questions, it has to have to be left out. It just has to be, you know, it's, oh, well, it's just a soul. And my soul is different from others just because it is. It's a different soul. And you can see how the limitations, therefore, of this um, approach. It doesn't really explain anything. It just says it's a mystery, essentially. And um, also, we can use science. It would be wrong to say that science has discovered nothing about consciousness. Um, we can. I mean, it seems for me quite obvious that the brain and the nervous system are directly causally Linked with the mind, and it would it would seem absurd to deny that. Um, obviously, if you destroy someone's brain, they immediately stop thinking. Um, and again, quite why then a spirit, a soul, would inhabit that body, and would only decide to vanish if the brain is destroyed or if the blood stops flowing to the brain, but wouldn't do so if an if a hand were chopped off, for example. What you know, there's obviously a, a material causal link there that makes it that way and not another way. Um, and I suppose they could say, oh, yes, well, when the body dies, it flees. But again, that leaves open the mystery of why has it decided to inhabit this body? And why does it feel it has to flee? Uh, and where does it go to? It's again, the whole thing is, is mysterious. Um, and actually, there's a better example we can give than, than just a brain being destroyed, which would be uh, brains that have been partially destroyed. In other words, like a lobotomy or um, someone who uh, you know, has had brain damage of some kind. Where we can see very clearly that their ability to thought, to think, their cognitive abilities are restricted. Um, uh, they they can't think in the same way necessarily, and yet we would still say that there's still a person in there. There's still a soul, if you like. There's, we wouldn't say they're no longer any. There's zero consciousness there now, and it's just nothing. Um, and so clearly, there's some very direct causal relationship between the brain, the nervous system, uh, and consciousness that can't be is. explained or grasped in any way by by saying that the consciousness is is just a sort of spiritual entity um neuroscientists also have um, been able to show how different parts of the brain are responsible for different kinds of thinking and that can be demonstrated in a scientific manner Um, probably you're familiar with these these uh some of these experiments um and uh Interestingly, also, although I think it's just a, a, a merely kind of scientific approach to the brain, in other words, one that leaves out philosophy, one that just approaches it on a sort of part by part basis, if you like, wouldn't grasp what consciousness is. Um, largely because consciousness isn't just produced by the brain, it's actually produced by society, which we'll come on to later. But anyway, although such a thing can't grasp consciousness itself, um, it's very interesting to see how the developments of neuroscience have shed light upon what distinguishes consciousness from computer thinking, if you want to call it that. For example, they've noted that the structures of the brain have a much more fluid and integrated character than do computers, um, where, you know, the whole thing kind of thinks collectively and different parts of it can substitute themselves for others in a way that you obviously don't have with computers, which are much more rigidly defined and also which are much more sort of like separate parts sort of stitched together, basically. Um, and and that has been shown by the actual structure of the brain, and that reveals something about the the, the difference and between consciousness and computer reasoning, uh, and uh, and that is a problem I will come onto a lot uh, uh, talk about a lot later. And um, uh, similarly, uh, those with greater metacognitive abilities than others, which means our ability to think about thoughts, which is, it is kind of like the essence of thinking. Um, what makes us conscious as opposed to animals is is not so much that we sort of are conscious of the world around us, but that we 're conscious of ourselves can think about ourselves and our role in the world that 's really surely the essence of consciousness to be self aware and that 's that 's known scientifically speaking as metacognition one 's ability to judge your own ability so your 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 ability to correctly say. If you're good at this or that, basically, and that this suppose, is a rough measure of intelligence, and they found that those with better metacognitive abilities in experiments, those who better judge themselves what they're capable of, etc., have a larger uh, prefrontal cortex, which is a specific part of the brain. Um, so, um, and, and this interestingly parallels certain ideas of Hegel, who developed the idea that you know um, con- that thinking really. Um, is, is 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 a sort of loop like process, which has also been developed by this guy Douglas Hofstadter, who I mentioned before, who developed the idea that consciousness is a loop, is a feedback loop. Well, Hegel really first developed that idea um, that it's all it's a sort of an enclosed process, or well, not even totally enclosed, but one that refers back to itself, that, that develops itself. Um, and uh, and that really is surely the nature of consciousness. We we learn, we we understand ourselves better. We we judge ourselves, we assess what we've done, <coughs> in order to to then grow and become more intelligent and do things better in the future. Um. So science has actually shed a certain amount of light on consciousness, and I think has has demolished the idea that uh, the brain is somehow not responsible for thinking, but. Um, nevertheless such an approach quickly hits a barrier I think, it only goes so far it provides clues, but it doesn't answer this mystery of what the I is what emotion is, what meaning is uh, and where it comes from what this sense of personality, this sense of self and why a robot that can perfectly mimic, like this computer the other day that apparently tricked people into thinking it was a 13 year old Ukrainian boy um, and that, that was, you know, has apparently passed the Turing test which is where You know, if you interact, if you ask a computer questions, its responses are so realistic, um, including sort of flawed in the way a human would be flawed, as to as for you to think that it's a a person. But we want to say, well, that's not conscious, though, is it? It's 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 a set of algorithms. It's a set of predefined rules which are so complicated and so well done, they're convincing. But there's no internal life to it, right? There's no sense of self that that computer has. That's what we want to say. Um, and so, how do we answer that question uh, and i idealists um, uh, would say um, that and in a certain sense they have a lot of um, they have a point when they say this, they point out that electrical signals, for example, in the brain surely can 't be consciousness that synapse is firing off how how you can you look at a synapse and say well that 's you know one part consciousness um although obviously the most intelligent scientists don't say that. But they do have something of a point when they say this, and they would say things like for example, there's a famous thing where they would say, "Well, if you look at a brain scan uh, you can't know what someone's thinking about, and you certainly can't experience someone's thoughts by having a fully comprehensive scan of their thought and how how can you therefore explain what consciousness is? you can examine all of its physical components and reveal them for what they are, but you're not um you never experience their sense of smell if that's what they're having or their sense of of um you know, uh, their emotional content or what they're thinking um, at all. You can never have that. And therefore they would say that um, there's something elusive that science doesn't grasp, doesn't get at. I think that they, they have a point and it, it reveals the limitations of certain scientific approaches, what we would call reductionistic approaches, which is still very prevalent in science, although some scientists um, can see the problems with that and have moved towards more of a dialectical approach. Um, but nevertheless... Um, reductionism is, is very prevalent in science and it's similar to what Marx and Engels criticised as mechanical materialism, like the first wave of materialism um, in the sort of 17th century um, and 18th century, where um, they pointed out that it, it, was, it was a passive understanding of consciousness that was merely an object, if you like, for other objects, just something pushed around by the material world and had no independent role. Um, and, and and reduces things particularly to their component parts. You know, it's like when people say silly things, like uh, as we'll probably hear many times in the next few weeks, "old oh, football." It's just a load of people running around on a on a patch of grass, kicking kicking something around. That's what people will say. You can see Julian nodding there. Obviously, agrees with that. Um, or you know, the finest piece of music. It's it's you know. It's just uh, it's just you know vibrations. And I, I I even remember as a sort of 13-year-old in school when I first, you know, came to terms properly with chemistry and biology, I remember thinking, like, how can any biologist feel emotions? Because they must be aware that all that is is molecules firing around in their brain, right? So how can they still want things? How can they still care about things? Can't, well, you know, why don't they realise, oh, this is just, I'm just being manipulated by molecules. Um, now, the, 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 that is that is the reductionistic approach, basically. Um, and, it, and it is very prevalent in science. And uh, instead of seeing things more as systems, as integrated wholes that are more than the sum of their parts. I think that's what Marx and Engels were driving at. Uh, Trotsky also, if you read Trotsky's philosophical notebooks, which are not commonly read, they were published after his lifetime, they're incomplete. Um, they were published quite recently, actually, I think only like in the 80s. And um, there's it, real nuggets of wisdom in there that actually um, anticipate the most recent developments in cognitive science, like, for example, with this man, Douglas Hofstadter. And Trotsky said that, um, in, which is really similar to what Hofstadter says, when he says, how can neurons, or or even, not even neurons, but emotions, push things around? If I drive my car somewhere... How is it that tiny little things in my head or or sort of elusive emotions, which don't even seem to be there, which you can't see, how is it that they manage to cause a car to move around? Or is that an illusion? Is that not really what's happening? And he wants to say, no, that is what's happening. That somehow emotions do have a unique causal role in the world, even though he's a materialist. And Trotsky says the same thing. He says, consciousness cannot be reduced to its physiological processes, it must have its own laws that are independent of the bodily processes. Otherwise, it would confer no advantage to any animal and would be a costly waste, because obviously the brain takes up a lot of energy, the human brain particularly so. So it must have some unique role to play. And indeed, that is the case, if you think about it. If you put a brain in a vat, it's physiologically basically the same. Of course, the details are different from someone who's led a full life. It hasn't grown the same connections. But basically, it's the same matter the same principles but it doesn't obviously have any conscious content whatsoever or even a person that has grown up outside of society uh we know that where there have been some examples of that they don't really have consciousness in the same way that other people do so it's it's there seems to be clear that it's not just reducible simply to oh, you know synapses and uh and uh you know um other part i don't i 'm not a cognitive scientist i don 't know the details of how the brain works' Sorry, a neuroscientist i don 't know how the details of the brain works um, that Of course, those things are essential without them it couldn 't happen um, but nevertheless um, somehow on, at the same time they don 't seem to be relevant particularly at all um, and that is if you like a dialectical dialectical contradiction. It is this contradiction between the particular and the general that the the small parts which make it up. Are essential for it, and yet at the same time, uh, somehow the whole, the process as a whole, seems to be something different than those parts. And we find that all across nature, actually, the more you think about it, the more you find it. Um, and uh, so that this is, we're getting somewhere. Then we're making some progress in how to think about this. Um, but back onto this, this criticism of mechanical materialists um, that Marx made. Uh, with people like Feuerbach and, the, and Spinoza, who I've just been reading, who was uh, a, a genius, who, who was particularly useful for the philosophy of mind, I think, but still very mechanical in a lot of ways. And what you see with them is a brilliant attempt to to explain um, the, the the human as basically a machine, which is the uh, the right kind of step in the sense that we're saying it's not a soul; it's you know it's a physical thing like other things. But it was very simplistic and very mechanical. And if you read Spinoza, it's sort of like it's this very quantitative approach. Like this emotion is, is this thing plus this thing plus this thing, and that equals this emotion. And another emotion is this other emotion plus that same emotion. And and it is very uh, simplistic. And in particular, what the impression you get from them is that consciousness plays no independent role, which ultimately is kind of like the same as saying it doesn't exist. Basically, consciousness is, is just an entirely predictable... Um, and uniform uh, reflection of the material world, a passive reflection of the material world, if you like. So, in other words, the same input will create the same outputs, and that output is nothing other than just a sort of the impression of the inputs, if you like. Um, but actually, as Marx explains in the Theses on Feuerbach, it's a consciousness has a role to play. It has, again, to go back to Trotsky, it has unique laws. It, it has a different input into the material world. Um, Now, this isn't a mystical thing. This is not an anti-materialist thing to say at all, in my opinion. Uh, Because actually, if you think about this, this this is not unique to consciousness at all, although consciousness has its own unique laws. But then again, so does everything, doesn't it? And doesn't everything respond to the the physical world in a different way? So that if you punch a wall, it will react differently to if you punch a sheet of paper. But it's the same input, right? It's the exact same input. But the, the response... Uh, the interaction and the outcome is something, is something unique. Um, and consciousness, obviously, to be actually existing in the material world, it has to be a particular part of the material world, and not the same as everything else. But That doesn't mean it's not in the material world, right? It, it is in the material world, it's just a particular part of it that's different from others. And therefore, it has its own ways of reacting to the same physical stimuli that other things don't have, if you like. But I would say I still think there's something still further unique about consciousness. Um, And nevertheless, I think it's important to point out that just because something plays a unique role in the material world, it doesn't mean it's not part of the material world, which is a key mistake that is made in philosophy, especially with consciousness all the time, that it's somehow because it's different. It's not in the material world. It's just some sort of mystical entity that has its own uh, features that don't in any way are not in any way derived from the material world. Um, Lenin also makes this point in his uh, philosophical notebooks on, um, on Hegel. He says, and this is a direct quote, Consciousness not only reflects the world, it also creates it. Philosophical idealism is only nonsense from the standpoint of crude, simple metaphysical materialism. In other words, mechanical materialism that I was talking about. But from the standpoint of dialectical materialism, on the other hand, philosophical idealism is a one-sided exaggerated development of one of the features aspects facets of knowledge into a manner divorced from matter so it is obviously idealism is fundamentally wrong but nevertheless has a a truth in it which is which is the understanding that consciousness is not just a reflection of the material world but is an brings something to the table which is unique and thus we can see the unique power of humanity that we can have uh Uh, that our imagination plays a very important role. We're not restricted to an endless repetition of the same things uh, based on our experiences. Because ultimately we all experience the same things or or we would do if we didn't have culture. Uh, We would have experienced the same material world, obviously a slightly different position within it. And that's what happens with animals. Obviously animals don't make any development, any cultural developments from generation to generation. They just essentially repeat the same thing. Um, But uh, we don't have that we have the ability to imagine things, of course, based on our material experience uh, and and fundamentally answerable to material laws. So I can't just imagine the ability to fly and because I've imagined it, I can therefore fly. I have to therefore understand how to fly, which is to create a specific machine that works in a certain way. Nevertheless, I have the ability to do something which has never been done before, to create something that has never happened before on the basis of the same laws, obviously of nature, but nevertheless, in my mind, I can put different things together and get a different outcome. And therefore it's wrong to just treat it as if fantasy and imagination don't exist, that they're just silly constructs of, of idealism. They do play a role in the material world and they do change the material world. Um, so we have to look at it on a, on a more of a macro level, on a general level, not just on the, the particular component parts to grasp how it, how it has something uh, unique about it. And just to explain that... Why, you, why I emphasise this point? Because you do see it in science all the time. Um, in the book I just read by Douglas Hofstadter, he is one who rejects this reductionistic approach in science, and yet we see, I see him throughout the book making the same kind of mistakes, thinking that consciousness is merely something that occurs once a brain uh, has d- evolved in an animal, which is large enough, and it therefore develops certain unique qualitative properties as a qualitative leap. So in that sense, he's dialectical. He sees it as a whole, not just so many parts. But nevertheless, he doesn't have any understanding of the real macro process, in other words, society, um, and our role in it as individuals. He just sees it as so long as you have a brain that's emerged in an animal, it will have some special property of a feedback loop, um, which other brains don't have and therefore will become conscious. And in another article I just read in New Scientist in the last week, um, it suggested that consciousness is uh, an to, to directly quote it, a weird byproduct of a brain that has developed such a level of complexity, um, and it had to have error. it was when a brain develops the ability to correct its own errors, right and which is just a sort of mathematical kind of potential which computers can do as well, to sort of sift through the data and just identify an error, something that's gone wrong. there 's an automatic process with no consciousness within it. But once that happens, as apparently somehow a weird byproduct. Consciousness emerges, which to me is, is so stupid because it doesn't even dwell on what consciousness is in itself, because consciousness in itself has a content. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a certain kind of matter. It's not like, a, 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 um, like bile which is oozed out of an organ, which I think someone described that as, someone originally thought that. It's not, you know, I mean, it's you can't pick it up. It's not a certain property in that way. It, it has a content which is which comes from outside of the brain. In other words, we think of things which we are motivated by. We think of our own real experiences. We think of, you know, all of the complexities of life. And in order to be able to do that, which animals can't do, we have to live our life in a different way, obviously. And that's that's the kind of the key thing. But to imagine that a brain can just sort of have a certain complexity and just just start start thinking, well, thinking about what and why. What, you know that's they don't even begin to ask that question, so it is important to highlight this this problem um, <clears throat> Marx obviously pointed out that society is not merely an aggregation of individuals it's not just so many atoms it is uh, a structure if you like it's, a, it's an organ it's a body with different parts that are dependent on one another one another and interact with one another. And um, in doing so, if you read the 1844 manuscripts, which are um, very interesting, very incomplete, and I think there's some ideas there which are a bit clumsy, Um, this is never published in Marx's lifetime, Um, but there's some amazing nuggets of wisdom in there, and I particularly like the section where he dwells on humanity as part of nature, which again seems obvious perhaps to us in this day and age, but it's something that philosophy has had a profound difficulty in coming to terms with philosophy always treats it as subject versus object object is material world and subject is you know consciousness and that there's a complete dichotomy between the two but marx explained no uh, the subject is also an object it is part of the world of objects we are physical beings and as such we are suffering beings and here you have the dialectical elements the contradictory elements which you don't have in earlier materialism which treats us as just sort of inert objects just sort of like machines that just sort of move around for some reason. Marx explains the dynamic, the driving force in it, the living aspect of matter, which is to say that he, he points out that a, hu- a human individual is a suffering being because it is an objective being, not a mysterious subject, not a spiritual entity, but a product of the material world. It is therefore dependent on the material world. It has to breathe constantly, has to eat, as do other animals, obviously. And for that reason, we have to go out into the world and daily interact with it. So that's what makes us subjective. In other words, we have a will, we have an interest in the world. And it's also from that that we have society, because that forces us to enter into definite relations with other people at a certain level of development. Um, if we didn't have to eat and breathe, obviously, we wouldn't bother doing that. No one would ever go and work for Tesco or any other person, right? You would just Why would you do it? You have to do it because you're a, a limited and suffering being, Right it's built into the nature of us that we need to we need to constantly um, adapt we need to constantly consume uh, the material world around us and that from therefore from the the contradictory and partial nature of the part in other words the human individual you have the whole getting a certain necessary structure to it therefore not the whole of society not just being a collection of people who you know who you can call society if you want to, but no, society is has an independent laws which are different from those of the individuals that make it up because people have to enter into relations. Because if you like, they're a chip off the block, they're a part of the whole, they have their own history, they come from society too. Obviously, they haven't just popped into the, the material world, which is another thing you get a sense of when you read philosophy. They just take the human individual as if it just emerged. And is and it totally independent and just sort of thinks because it feels like it? No, we, we are products of society. Obviously, we're born from two human individuals. Um, and we are dependent, therefore, on society. And we rely on society to get our food, etc. And therefore, society has a necessity to its shape. It's not an accident that it has this, these laws to it, that it behaves in this way, that you get uh, economic laws within it, because those reflect the fact that each individual in it is a part of the whole and has to be, cannot escape from it really. Um, and uh, and I think that's in- an incredibly important grasp of, of, of any system, not just society, but any system. The parts that make it up are partial, they're limited, they depend on the rest of the system. An arm also can't exist independently of a body. It wouldn't really be an arm if it were detached from the body. Um, so, you, you know, you find examples of this everywhere. And um, I think that, uh, yeah, so I think this is, we're beginning to grasp that Marxism has something unique to offer in the understanding of consciousness, both in the idea that we are material, but also that we have a driving element to us. We're not just sort of passive parts of, 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 of the material world, but that we are, we sort of, we have interests, that we, we are subjective in that sense. And it's sim- something similar to what Nicholas said in the last session about this idea of subjectivity. Just because you're a subject, doesn't mean you can't grasp the objective. In fact, I, I would see it the other way around. Precisely because you have a subjective interest, you also have an in, uh, a need to discover the way things really work. It's our subjective interest that have made us discover laws, um, made us discover science, basically, or create science, because obviously we need the usefulness that it gives us. So it we, you know, it le- enables us to overcome certain problems. If we didn't have that subjective interest, then we wouldn't be able to, to develop these objective understanding um and uh, i think often there's this idea that if you're subjective if you're looking at things from the point of view of individual interest it's automatically wrong it's automatically what to one sided of course our thoughts are one sided but then we balance it, other, it out with other people's thoughts that have come from a different point of view um and thus we we just, human thinking develops towards um objectivity towards correctness anyway to I would like to take us a a step further back in this discussion, not just to the the, the beginnings or the fundamental motivations for human society, but to look also at at life itself, which I think is a very interesting question. I think that the the mystery of life also is very analogous to the mystery of consciousness. And life is, in terms of philosophy, the mystery of life is to dead matter what consciousness is to um, unconscious animals basically you know it seems it seems a mystery how is it that sort of you know dead matter like this table for example or any other like a rock for example how is it that, that suddenly develops an animating force that it lives and what is life it seems like this sort of strange mystery and there's a tendency to think of it as a as a an abstract spiritual force which is breathed into dead matter which is obviously how it is explained in religion and again it's that problem is a product uh, product of looking at it in a a finished form, in other words looking at already existing living things and comparing them with completely dead things, dead objects that have never lived. The reality is it should be looked at um, as a process and as as one of many steps along the way and if we do that properly we'll begin to see actually there's there's not such a clear dividing line between life and non-life and we can also see there's an element of life in what is not living which may sound rather mystical. But, it, but I think is absolutely correct. Um, <clears throat> Spinoza uh, grasped this in a brilliant insight when he said that um, all things, not just living things, but all things persevere in their existence. And they will only cease to exist if something else destroys them from outside. That's a little bit mechanical because, of course, that's not quite true because in their perseverance, things also extinguish themselves. And it's not just about something from outside happening to, to destroy you. You know, the sun will eventually extinguish itself precisely through preserving itself a candle will eventually burn itself out of existence precisely through its persevering in its existence as a flame you know so actually it's a bit more two-sided than uh, spinoza presented it but nevertheless it's a brilliant insight because he 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 develops the idea that matter itself is in a certain sense alive obviously it's obviously not literally alive but that it has certain characteristics all matter of course there's no such thing as abstract matter there's no matter in general Every matter that we find is a particular kind of matter. Uh, in other words, different elements, different objects. And therefore, they have to have distinguishing features. They have to have ways of being that determine themselves and make them different from others. And if that's the case, then if you, that's, I think we can begin to grasp what he means by the perseverance of things. Because... If, if something has a definite quality, that it is different from other things, there must be something, there must be some principle, if you like, of its own organisation. And of course, we know that is the case if you look at a certain atom, a certain element rather. We know that it has this quality uh, that on a macro scale may, may have certain features that we know that we can interact with, um, like gaseousness, for example, or being lighter than others, um, but or being more conductive than others. But on a micro scale, on a small level, it's obviously because it has this number of protons, this number of electrons, etc. In other words, there are certain organising principles, if you like, to its existence that keep it in that way. And if they weren't there, then it it wouldn't really exist as such. It would immediately cease to exist or would immediately change into something else. So there are certain principles that all matter has which can be discovered, laws of, of the natural world, basically, which hold them together in a certain way. In other words, self-organisation. Matter has a tendency towards self-organisation. And the latest developments in science of the past 50 or 100 years have tended to show this, you know, because there is this tendency to think of matter as just nothing, really, as just sort of randomness, of meaninglessness of no particular kind. And it's only consciousness that has purpose and order to it. And that is summed up in that classic argument for the existence of God, the teleological argument, which says that if you found a watch in a field, you would conclude that someone had made it because it's too ordered, isn't it? It's too purposeful. It couldn't just come together randomly. But then he says, I can't remember who it was who came up with this, but he, he said that, well, isn't the universe like that? Because the universe exhibits order. You know, the planets are spherical bodies, which seems a very perfect thing. And they move in a very predictable manner around one another. Thus, we have a harmony and a seeming purposefulness in nature. And this is not living nature. This is not sort of like primitive animals type of thing. This is, you know, this is just rocks, but it seems to have a certain order and purposeness to it. And he concluded from this that there must be a mind that created it. William Paley. William Paley. okay, yeah. Um, And uh, to me, this is a fallacy Um, But it's not a fallacy because the tendency to discredit this in scientific thinking is to just say, well, it could have happened randomly. And it does happen randomly. And to me, that's a bit of a limited way of looking at it. At random, yes, in the sense that there's no definite purpose behind it. There's no pre-existing idea which created the solar system or anything else. But there is a link between consciousness, to me, between consciousness and these basic forms of matter. And many people will see this as a kind of almost a spiritualistic look at uh, the world and not a materialist one. But I would disagree with that. Trotsky also was accused, I think, by Burnham or one of the American Trotskyists who ended up becoming, moving to the right and breaking with socialist ideas. And he accused Trotsky of being an animist. In other words, someone who thinks that ordinary matter is invested with spirit and you can see why he would think that, because dialectical materialism does say that all things move and have driving forces behind them. They're not just inert. And that seems to me to be the only way to link consciousness and, and, the, and even life with non-life. And um, uh, the latest developments in, in science, again, do vindicate this. There's a book that came out only two years ago by someone called Adi Pross, who is a professor of, not of biology, but of chemistry, but increasingly, there's a link between biology and chemistry. He's a professor in, uh, in uh, an Israeli university. And he, has, uh, um, he deals in the idea that, because traditionally biology was always seen as fundamentally different from the other sciences, which again, I think reflects the same problem in human thinking, to see there is dead matter it's just, just chaos and random individual things bashing into one another. And then there's the more spiritual world of ideas and forces and sort of meaning, etc. And that these things are too different uh, somehow, that they have no relation to one another. And you see that in that distinction, chemistry and physics, seen you know, as similar and, you know, the same kind of laws. And then biology does have laws, but those laws are some totally different, unrelatable to the world of chemistry and physics. You know, the, the, the laws of life. But he has shown that actually there's a link, there's a stepping stone between them. And what he says is that, uh, uh, these are quotes from an article from him, he says, The real question is how matter of any kind can have an agenda, and no less tantalisingly, how the objective laws of physics and chemistry could have transformed dead stuff into spectacularly complex agenda-driven living stuff. Recent advances now indicate that abiogenesis, which is the process of life's emergence, and biological evolution are one continuous process with an identifiable driving force, which is the drive towards greater stability. Once some replicating entity, say a molecule or a replicating set of molecules, happens to emerge, it can maintain a presence over time, even though the individual replicators may well be energetically unstable, all because of that enormous kinetic power of replication. As long as resources are available, they keep on making more of themselves, frantically. But why did an early replicating simple uh, system, relatively simple in nature, evolve to become so highly complicated? In other words, you know, complicated life like humanity or other mammals, for example. He says, for the same reason that picking up an object with two fingers <clears throat> is a lot easier than doing so with just one. Complexity facilitates the replicative process. And what governs which materials, or which available materials, will be chosen along the way to further facilitate the replication process? For example, amino acids, sugars, lipids. He says, The title of a Woody Allen movie says it all, whatever works. And he goes on to explain how there's something called RNA, which is technically not living, but exhibits a- aspects of replication um and also even of evolution in other words it's just molecules that not for any pre designed purpose not because anyone was like oh design it in this way and it will replicate and that'd be good it's just matter that happens to have this function that it replicates itself by interacting with the material outside of it, it doesn't do so for any purpose it just behaves in that way and in doing so it actually evolves because it reproduces itself and small changes emerge in the process and different deviations from the original developed, which is basically evolution. But it's apparently technically not classed as life. You also have viruses are considered by some people to not really be alive, or it somehow straddles the boundary between life and non-life. So you can see that there are basic organizing principles to matter. You know, the attraction of matter to other matter, for example, that uh, out of which can emerge the ability to replicate and therefore, once something replicates, if it replicates better than other things do, it will tend to survive. Not because anyone will it, not because anyone's like, I really like this kind of animal and I want it to stay, but just because if it works, um, then it works. Basically, it's kind of a tautology. I mean, some people have said the idea of evolution is tautological, which it isn't really, but it's, you know, it's, it's basically that if something is uh, if something works um, just because by fluke, basically, um, although even that stresses it a bit too strongly, it's as if it's just totally random, because it's not, because there's a tendency towards self-organisation has to be there for matter to even exist and if if something develops that on a higher level and therefore can outcompete the others not consciously, then it will tend to survive and therefore you have the development of evolution. And therefore life you can see is, is just something that emerges out of the basic organising principles of matter on a higher level um, and uh, I think this can begin to unlock other mysteries of, of human thought. Because one of the big mysteries in the philosophy of mind is this question of qualia, which is a term which basically means how it feels to see things. Uh, and, and also it's summed up in the question of what is it like to be a bat? Someone, someone wrote an essay on that. And that sounds like a, uh, an odd question, but the idea is that there is something that it is like to be a bat. We don't know what it is like, but it feels like something to be a bat, has a certain sensation to itself. And uh, we have that too, obviously. We have a certain, it feels like to be a human, or it feels like to be this particular person. And you can't describe it, that's the key thing. But that uh, you can't describe the colour yellow. And if someone has never seen before, if someone's blind, there's no way you can describe it to them. We all know this, uh, this idea. Um, and this is seen as a stumbling block, again, for a materialist explanation, because it seems to defy explanation. Um, first of all, I would like to say that I don't see the fact that it's not describable as a problem because subjective experience would have to be non-describable in the sense that you would have to de- act- the only way to describe it is to experience it because what does it mean the color yellow as we experience it is not it as it actually is in a sense it's it's it doesn't mean that we're seeing it wrongly like kant might say but what it is is it's a product of the relationship between ourselves and the object that is yellow obviously we know what makes something yellow is a certain wavelength of light um, but that's not what we see. We don't see little wavelengths. Um, but it, it interacts with us in a certain way, and we see it in that way as a distinction from other colours, which obviously interact with us in a slightly different way. And that's how we see it. And therefore, as a subjective experience, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, it doesn't mean it's spiritual, it just means it's a product of two objects, if you like, that have definite qualities interacting in a definite way, and therefore isn't explainable outside of that relationship. Um, it's an inherently subjective experience. And to me, that, that seems quite obvious, that you'd have to actually be <laughs> that subjective individual. Um, and to be a subjective individual, all it really means, scientifically speaking, is to be a part of the world, one part. Um, uh, and uh, not, not to be a spiritual entity, but just to be one part. Um, and uh, But on the other hand, we can also explain these kind of conund- conundrums, I think, scientifically as well. First of all, to me... Um, I think part of the reason it's seen as a problem, this question of qualia and why there's a certain feeling to all human experience, almost an emotional content, Um, although you can't really call it emotional to see the colour yellow, but you know what I mean, a certain sort of sensation that comes with it that can't be described. And you would say that a a machine never has, so a camera obviously sees yellow in a sense, but it doesn't really see it. it, doesn't mean anything for it, but there's no internal life to it. And that's seen as a problem. Well, to me... First of all, it seems to be to do with the assumption that matter itself almost doesn't really exist. It doesn't really have a life of its own, if you like. If we accept that it does, that all matter has certain organising principles and really behaves in a certain way, then it's quite obvious that subjective experiences would then be a a direct product of one piece of matter um, that has its own uh, organising principle, if you like, its own sort of way of being that, that holds it together interacting with a different thing which as i've explained would be different for something else because that other thing is different it why would it have to be the same doesn't mean it doesn't exist it just means that two different objects interacting with one another will have different experiences um it's i don't know at this point it gets rather hard to 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 describe things in a a brief period of time so i don't know if i'm losing people but to me it just seems that it's a product of the fact that matter self-organizes um and also on this question of we cannot see thoughts, um, where you look at a brain scan, for example, and you have no idea what that person's thinking, or even if you can, let's say we devised a machine that was so sophisticated, uh, with such a brilliant graph of uh, the mind, or, or of brain rather, that it would know, it'd look at a scan and you know, oh, it's thinking about the colour yellow, or it's you know thinking a happy emotion, or it's thinking about, you know, I don't know, any emotional thing that it could be thinking about. Even then they would say, no, 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 but that's different. You're not experiencing it, you know. There's some elusive thing, you're just describing it technically from an outsider point of view, but you're not, you can never experience it, and therefore there's some, again, there's this elusive thing that you can't get at uh, just from science. To me, again, that's quite easy to explain. First of all, we know that we can build. Perception itself is a very straightforward thing that can be materially explained. And we can build machines that perceive things. We can build machines that sense light and not only that, but interact with it, that move out of the way of things, you know, but on the basis of looking at them. Um, and, and we can explain that. It's quite a simple thing. Um, so that, that aspect of it, to perceive something else, which Spinoza brilliantly described as the one object moulding itself around another, if you like, which is what is unique to perception, um, a dead object, a rock, doesn't perceive anything. If an, another rock is flying towards it, it doesn't get out of the way. has no idea that it's coming. Um, whereas a living being perceives it. In other words, it sees photons hitting its retina, but recognises that that's not just an irritation of its retina, but is a separate object that is responsible for it, and therefore <clears throat> gets out of the way. So, and that's, that's easy, actually, to explain um, scientifically. As I said, we can even reproduce it. But um, this question of, but yes, but you don't experience it when you, when you build it or when you uh, scan a brain. You don't experience the emotion. You don't experience the, the I-ness that that person is having, the sense of self, which is always elusive. But um, <clears throat> I, would always, I would say that, again, that that's quite easy to explain in the sense that um, you would have to be that person to experience it. Uh, and that doesn't mean that it's not happening or that it's spiritual. It just means that you're not that person. Similarly, we can feed into uh, a recording system sound, and it translates that into into uh, waves of you know f- of uh, electrons that mimic th- the basically parallel the same uh, pattern of sound waves, and that's how it will be stored. Um, that's how the sound will be stored. Now we can look at that sound wave, and I'm sure you've all looked at sound waves before, right? And you can understand, it, and you can even you can even understand that that sound wave uh, is. Um, represents loudness or white noise or the sound of a drum or a cymbal, perhaps you can even grasp that if your your level of understanding of sound waves is enough but you still don't hear it when you see the sound wave do you You just know that that's what it represents and that's because it isn't the sound wave. it, it isn't the sound it's a it's a it's the equivalent pattern to it but it's something else it's you know it's lines on a sheet of paper um nevertheless it's very useful because if you feed that into the correct apparatus which is built for that purpose then that apparatus will reproduce that sound. You can feed it in, it can record it in, it can play it, transfer it back into actual sound waves. And then when that enters into your own apparatus, in other words, your sensory apparatus in your brain, and it really directly interacts with you as sound, then you have that subjective experience of it, which is the experience of it interacting with you from your own point of view. And I would say that it's the same for... Um, uh, for such a recording apparatus that you know to look at it doesn't mean it's not happening it just means you're not that recording apparatus and to look at a brain scan that tells you what someone's thinking doesn't mean that you know that there's some spiritual entity in there you're not grasping it just means you're not that brain so why would you be having that experience you know what the experience is perhaps but you don't actually have it unless you are that person to me it's a very straightforward thing and i think it's it's a riddle which actually when you understand it correctly is is not even a riddle really at all um <coughs> where am I now I think this begins we can now begin to answer this question of why a computer isn't conscious, and again, we have this same problem with scientific thinking of tending to say that um once a computer develops enough uh transistors in it or something it will become conscious and that's that's the story in Terminator two where um I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's on TV about once a week for some reason. And uh, it's, um, it's uh, <clears throat> in Terminator 2, there's this there's this system, this mainframe or something they're building, and it somehow suddenly develops consciousness because it's become complicated enough. And to me, it, it, it's, that's a reductionistic approach again. And what they're missing is this element of living matter. And what I mean by that is something that exists independently in the world, and that therefore has willpower. Willpower in a one form or another is built into the apparatus of life from the first moments of evolution because the first life the most simple life that actually evolves has some equivalent to willpower in the sense that it has to actively seek out that matter which is good for itself to consume to keep it alive and get rid of that matter which isn't or move out of the way of it and uh, um, obviously it's not conscious but that is an equivalent to willpower And again, it doesn't happen because any mind has inserted it into it. It's just because it's a principle of organisation that works. And um, that is integrated into every moment of evolution. Any animal which evolved without that sense of self-preservation would obviously die and therefore wouldn't reproduce and would cease to exist. So it's inherent within all life. It has to be. And that is what a computer lacks. It has the same, well, not the same, but an equivalent sort of apparatus of thought. It has logic, you know, circuit boards. It can calculate, etc. And uh, but it can't. um, Has no independent existence. It doesn't have interests in the world. Um, Some people talked about that Google now has these very complicated algorithms for searches, which understand context based on all the other questions that have been asked. So it can anticipate what you mean. And that's amazing, and it can actually do that sometimes. You can get it right all the time, but it can do that. And it can be scary sometimes, actually. But the, the thing about that is is that, yes, but even that, even using all of the context of a billion or a trillion searches that other people have made, it's not the same thing, is it? Because it doesn't have an independent life. It doesn't have the ability to generate meaning for itself based on its own interests. We develop our own meaning in the world creatively, although it obviously m- matches up with other people's meanings because other people live similar lives. But we generate our own meaning subjectively because we have particular interests in the world and a particular life experience. So we're able to form connections between things because we want to, because it helps us to survive. Uh, Google search operating system has no independent life. It doesn't get rewarded with extra electricity if it gets things right. Um, although, there, are, interestingly, there are compu- there are robots that have been built now They come a little bit closer in the sense that they don't have a predetermined um, uh, sort of language or or coding within themselves which tells them that, oh, this is bad, avoid it, this is good, seek that out, which would would obviously be, makes it a mere tool. Its organizing principle, if you like, is outside of itself. It's in the person that created it, and therefore it has no independence. But the new, certain robots that have been made just for experimental purposes, not for use, are ones that directly experience things as they are, in other words, they don't feel pain because someone has programmed pain into it and telling you that this is bad. It merely um, senses things through system, you know through um, certain equipment and um, and it has an interest in preserving itself, which they somehow put in a, into it into i don't understand how and therefore it learns creatively through its own experience that certain things are bad for it, but it hasn't been programmed that this amount of input of this thing is bad for you and therefore move away so it kind of generates its own meaning from its own interest and that seems to me to be closer to life but it's a very stupid thing you have always in this discussion about robots that they'll somehow suddenly become conscious and overtake us i think they miss the point is that they're tools another example of the silliness of this is 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 they started to point out that robots the most intelligent computers are still much less intelligent than humans and in a sense, their processing power is much less. And in some ways, it's more, but in other ways, it's less because they're very different systems. And they've said that, oh, well, it's still like 10 times less powerful. And therefore, obviously, the assumption is that when it increases tenfold, it will be as conscious as we are. Um, but the, the thing you get from this is that you always think is that, well, if they're 10 times less intelligent than we are, then why are they useful? They're 10, it's like having a, a really stupid person around. Why is that going to be useful to you? Um, the point is, it's, the, they're not, it's not really that they're more stupid than us. It's that they're different, that they're tools, right? So they, we all know that computers are excellent at um, calculating things in a way that we aren't, right? Even the most basic computer can give you very complicated mathematical answers very quickly. And it's because they're dedicated to specific predefined tasks that they have no independence from. They have to follow. And they can only operate when they're switched on. So, and they focus entirely around that. You can see um, an example of the difference, I think, between human consciousness and uh, machine uh, thinking, if you want to put it that way, in uh, the difference in our memories. Because human memories are notoriously very um, bad, you know, you know we're, we're creative with our memory, if you like, and we apply our own subjective interests to them. So sometimes we alter our memories in, in terms of what we would like to be the case. Um, now, you, so you can see the advantage of computer memory in the sense that it, it fixes itself in terms of what actually happens, although errors can occur, obviously. It takes a picture, it keeps that exact pattern, if you like, of light within itself. It doesn't alter it, doesn't subject it to the interests of the rest of the system, it doesn't interact with anything, it just stays there. Whereas for a human, we are inter- all of our thoughts are integrated into one interest, into one system. And so we're creative with our thoughts and we're even creative with our memories, which has its downsides, obviously, but also has its good sides because it allows us to think independently for our own interests. And I think this begins to get at the fundamental difference, which isn't grasped by a lot of scientists. Um, Another example of this idea, I think, of, of the creativeness of consciousness is also in the example of a lot of philosophers have argued that thought is just language. Same thing. Um, Now, of course, they're very, they're onto something in the sense that thought is, uh, uh, language is the key tool for thought, and I don't think it could have developed without language, allowing us to form abstractions. I mean, language is, if you like, the externalisation of thought. It is, thought is the ability to abstract. That's what makes us different from other animals who do perceive things, who do even have emotions, but they don't form abstractions based on experience and generalisations, which they can tear out of their context and put into new contexts. Um, so they don't have that, but, um, <clears throat> what was I saying? Um, I suddenly lost my train of thought. Oh well, uh, yeah, language. Okay. So language obviously is abstraction. So names are an abstraction and therefore that's, it's a, and it's a system of, of abstractions and, and it's a very powerful tool for, and I don't think consciousness could happen without it. But to me, it's not the same thing. Consciousness has its own independent laws, which come from the objective world. And you'll notice, for example, often, when you go to say something, you have an idea of what you're going to talk about and what you're going to say. But even just the one sentence, not even the entire discussion, but just a single sentence, you don't plan out in advance every single word, or well, very rarely do you, and you end up discovering that actually you end up saying something slightly different than what you thought. And that's because as you go through it, you, just, you sort of feel through the objective um, um, concepts and, and how they relate to one another objectively. And you end up discovering new things almost as you do it. A bit like how an artist, like uh, doesn't, <clears throat> like an author, doesn't have a preconceived idea of every single detail of their plot. And as they write, it, they discover new things. If you like, characters do things they didn't expect. And you can see that. It, therefore, consciousness has this creative approach to the material world. It plays with with abstractions, with the way the material world really is, and tries out different things and discovers in doing so that some things work and some things don't. Um. One, uh, uh, I, I know I've spoken for a very long time. I have two. I think two other things I want to say. One is back onto this this guy Doug, Douglas Hofstadter, who's developed the idea of consciousness as a feedback loop. I just want to use this as an example, which is very interesting and useful for consciousness for understanding it. Especially this idea that Marxists are just reductionists and have no, you know, consciousness plays no role. He um, he w- did an experiment where he got a feedback loop, but not a human one. Um, where he pointed a camera at a screen, you know, like a, project, a screen that you project onto, and had what the camera was filming projected onto the screen. Now, obviously, if there's nothing on the screen, nothing happens because you're just filming a blank space and you're projecting onto it a blank space, and nothing happens, really. It's just there's no progress made. Which shows, I think, that um, similarly with consciousness, consciousness has to have some material input. It's not... Consciousness is always about the material world. It has, there's no such thing as a thought independent of the material world. A thought is always about something, even if it's something we've dreamt up. It still, you know, is based on real physical objects we've experienced. Anyway, what then happens if you if you put something into this frame uh, uh that you're filming like a person for example patterns start emerging that are independent of the initial input because what happens is obviously the slight discrepancy between the time um of you know the, the, the thing being filmed and then it being projected and then being filmed again. And therefore, it interacts with itself, if you like, that what is seen is projected, which is slightly different from what's actually been uh, is going on in front of it in, in, in what it's filming. And therefore, that is fed back into it. And, and it basically, strange patterns begin to emerge that couldn't be predicted in advance. No one would know exactly what pattern would emerge if someone stood in this position or in that position in the picture. And um, it shows the way in which I think that consciousness is creative, is, has its own laws, which are independent of the world around it in a certain sense. But on the other hand, are not. are entirely based on their subject matter. Because, of course, if that person leaves the uh, the project, if that person leaves the scene, the image breaks down and ceases. And it's entirely dependent on the movements that that person makes, which completely change the pattern. But it changes it in a way which is different than the actual person that is being filmed. It doesn't look the same. I think it's the same with... Um, Politics, politics is obviously a little bit like consciousness in relation to life. Politics is kind of like consciousness in relation to society in a way. And um, politics has its own laws, doesn't it? It's based on class society. It's based on material interests, which fundamentally shape it. But it has its own laws. A government, for example, could collapse because of a sex scandal between two members of, of, uh, of the cabinet, for example. Now, that can only happen because those people have been thrown together in that situation, in the House of Parliament, etc. And so it's dependent on all of the whole context of all of the material conditions. And also the fact that it's seen as outrageous, obviously, and would force the government to fall, is also based on the interests in society, the prejudices people have or don't have, etc. But you can see how at the same time, it's not the same as society, is it? It's not the same as economics. It's not the same as the class struggle. So there's a detail and a complexity to politics that you can't just see just from looking at economic laws. And I think a human being is the same. And I think that's also why we appear to be have free will, which I would say is not true. I don't believe in free will in the sense, obviously we are caused, obviously we're determined by the world around us. We don't do things arbitrarily. We do things because of our experiences. But on the other hand, it is so complicated. And in one person is condensed all of, or, or not all of, but much of human experience of thousands of years in the term, language, culture, etc., but in a particular way to them, in a way that's unique to them and their own life experience. And therefore, one cannot predict what someone will do. You can have a good idea, if you know them really well, obviously you can have a reasonable idea of what they will do, but you never really know. And therefore it appears that they have free will. It appears that they appear as totally independent actors. And in a certain sense, they are. Um, But on on the other hand, they're not because they are dependent on their experiences. And I think the final point I want to make is to link this back to society because if the causes to go back to this question of well, how is it that emotions and things like that can cause a car to drive around or cause a war to happen which is a physical process involving far greater physical objects than a human being or a human being's brain where do these sort of ethereal entities of emotions come from and how do they push these things around What if, if, if they're determined by something physical but it's not the physiology of the brain directly anyway What is it that determines emotions and what is is it that allows them to dictate the world? What is it that allows a war to take place? I would say it's the physiology of society, which is what really produces ideas. As I said, a person uh, growing up outside of society doesn't really develop ideas in the same way we do. And certainly a brain in a vat, I don't think, even if it were fed oxygen, wouldn't think at all. Um, So the content of ideas and the content of our emotions is derived from society and our particular role within it. Um, and, and that gives every person in society emotions and interests, which to a greater or lesser c- extent reflect the emotions and the interests of other people in society. And I think that uh, in that way, um, we can begin to understand how it is that these abstract things called emotions or, or, or thoughts in some way can cause such great events to take place. And of course, this isn't um, a session on the study of historical materialism and the laws of society. Um, but nevertheless, it is the case, I think, that the laws of society are greater and more powerful laws in determining what happens than the internal structures of each individual's brain. You know, that's the real reasons you think in this way. Of course, in a way that's particularised for yourself, because you're you're not just an abstract person, you're a particular person. But nevertheless, that's, that's the real reason you have certain thoughts. It's not because your brain had some particular structure to it that made you this way or that way, although that has some role to play. Um so it's the physiology of society that creates ideas. That's where ideas really come from, the discoveries of society, the interaction of people labouring to change the world, which in turn changes us and reflects back in on itself. Again, this idea of a feedback loop. And therefore, um, we come back onto the idea of the class struggle and the, sh- and the shape of society, that it's the clash of interests in society, both of individuals but particularly of classes, which also have interests, obviously, which shape consciousness, which shape individuals' ideas, and what ideas society or are dominant in society at a particular time. And on this, I'll end, therefore, on this note, which is that because of the state of things in society, we could also conclude that we're not fully conscious. You know, we're not at the end point of the development of consciousness in the same way that uh, a baby isn't, or people at the very dawn of society aren't, in the same way that uh, ma- other mammals are not fully conscious. Because um, um, if, it's, if, if it's society really that sort of develops ideas, um, then we have to say that um, society, the organism of society, is not something that is subject to conscious control, not in our society anyway. Um, you know, it, it's the movings of society, the laws of society. Like, for example, if there's an economic crisis, it's not because someone willed it so, it's because of the contradictions in our structures and because of the problems of capitalism. But when that happens, everyone finds their consciousness changed. Everyone finds their individual experience changed. If you're made unemployed, for example, obviously that changes your worldview somewhat. changes the, the thoughts that you have. And if that happens to many millions of people at the same time, it changes the way people think. And thus you see that we're not fully in control of our subject matter. We're not fully in control of the, of the life that we lead and of, and of the causes of our consciousness. There's a quote from Engels which sums it up which I'll like, I'd like to give. He says, The whole sphere of the conditions of life which environ man and which have hitherto ruled man now comes, in under socialism, under the dominion and control of man, who for the first time becomes the real conscious lord of nature because he's now become master of his own social organisation. The laws of his own social action, hitherto standing face to face with man as laws of nature foreign to and dominating him, like in capitalist society, the laws of crisis of capitalism, Seem foreign to us, seem unintended, don't they? Um, these laws will then be used with full understanding and mastered by him. Man's own social organisation, hith- um, hith- hitherto confronted as a necessity imposed by nature and history, becomes the result of our free action. The extraneous objective forces that have hitherto governed history pass under the control of mankind. Only from that time will we free ourselves more and more consciously and make our own history. For only from that time will the social causes set in movement by us have, in the main and in a constantly growing measure, the results intended. It is the ascent of man from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. I'll finish that. <coughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net and if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.